everything else we do on our day-to-day is so much sexier. Writing a brief, getting to an insight, discussing with the creatives, building presentations, finding smart quotes or a nice image to wrap it up so perfectly. Talking about problems? You know, what the heck, Rodrigo? What are you talking about? Why do you want me to engage into something that is so boring? Without a problem, you don't have a strategy. You cannot say you have a strategy until you know what the problem you're trying to solve. What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Rodrigo Moroni. He's the head of strategy and data, 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 three ways to say it. I've learned that by traveling to different places. He's the head of strategy and data at Crispin Porter and Boguski in Brazil, a pretty famous agency, right? Right. Uh, in addition, he currently serves as president of the board at Grupo de Planejamento, the professional organization that represents strategy professionals in the in Brazil. Uh, easy comparison to make, very similar to the APG or the account planning group in the UK and Australia and Canada and various other places. Previously, he's held strategy leadership positions at Wyden and Kennedy. BBH, JWT, and DDB in the US and Brazil, working for brands such as Nike, Budweiser, Heineken, Coca-Cola, and Mondelez. And his projects have won a total of over, over 180 awards, including a Grand Prix at Cannes. Rodrigo, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mark. So happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm I'm going straight into rapid fire stereotype breaking mode right now. So, we met in Brazil, and I recently had a book translated into Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese. And one thing that I noticed is that other than getting a lot of hugs and kisses when you enter rooms, which was a beautiful experience, there are a lot of words and a lot of long words in Portuguese and specifically Brazilian Portuguese, where let's say you wrote a book that's like 80,000 words. By the time you translate it, it's 1 million words. Did you know this? It's true. It's true. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> that is true. I was, just, I was just going through. I made a, you know the, the same observation a couple of days ago. We were translating some case studies from Portuguese to English. And the, the the person that is taking care of the uh, uh, submissions told me, "Oh, you you have to rewrite this part." And I say, "Can you translate first? And she's like, "Don't you prefer to write first, and then I can you know translate back?" I say, "It's going to change everything because once you translate to English, it's going to be half the space. So please translate first, and then I can have all the fun in the world I want." That's you know that sort of uh, standard seven hundred word count. They should actually sort of normalize that for different languages because some people are taking advantage of that. Like yeah, that. yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's it's really different. Here, what we're going to do now, rapid fire round. I'm going to give you five questions, and we're going to prove to people that Portuguese and specifically Brazilians who speak Portuguese are not long winded. Are you up for that? <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, you have to answer in one word. All right, I'm springing this on you. First question, is it true that Brazil is one of the most anxious countries in the world? Yes. In one word, why do you think that is? Politics. Okay. In one word, what do you think is the hardest thing about being an upcoming account planner or strategist in Brazil in an advertising agency? Racism. Okay. And then in one word, what has been or what have you seen as the biggest difference between working in 
the US compared to Brazil? Structure. Okay. Fifth question, final question. You've had a long, illustrious career. In one word, why do you still do the work that you do? Love. There you go. See, is it okay for me to have introduced a stereotype and then for us to have disrupted the stereotype or is all of that like bad behavior on my part? Um, the thing is that I hacked you because I, I gave you my answers in English, not in Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, you were translating from a thousand words into one. I saw that. Yeah, and of course, the, uh, so the, that was the first hack. I use the language that allows me to be more succinct, mm. uh, assertive. The second hack is that I chose words that carry a lot of meaning. Uh, I use powerful, overarching words that might be interpreted very complex, you know, in, in very complex ways uh, by different people. Uh, so we can expand on each Ooh. one of my answers. Yeah, for, I want. For, I want. For, I want to go book. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, but I, want, I want to get into your perception of language, right? Because there are a lot of people working around the world and, you know, a lot of Brazilians um, moving all over. The, there, there are Brazilians in every sort of major ad market, right? And yeah. it would be stereotypical to say things like they bring in a certain flair and self-expression and there's a, this really strong visual culture in Sao Paulo. And from mm -hmm. what I understand, a huge number of design and art direction students in Sao Paulo compared to nearly any other city in the world, right? So there, yeah. are, there are things that are, are stereotypes that are, we need to be a little wary of. So there are two words that you drew on or used just then in a way where I think you're implicitly comparing Portuguese, specifically Brazilian Portuguese with English. Right. Do you find that the English language is more succinct? I do. Um, it is a recurring observation here in Brazil that everything sounds better in English. If you want something to sound more powerful, more compelling, just make it in English. It instantly makes it sound more assertive. It doesn't mean that Portuguese cannot be like that. It just means that for most people, English is sort of a sort of a shortcut. For you to have that same power in Portuguese, you have to write way better. It's a complicated language. It gives you lots of choices. And also, of course, of the cultural associations with the English language, it just lends you a lot of uh, leeway on making things sound more powerful, you know. All the expressions right. that you have, all the influences you have in pop culture, it just lends itself very beautifully. Interesting. Because, I mean, a lot of English words are Latin-based, right? So I would have thought that there is a similarity. And yet, I, I think one of the things that I've noticed is working with brand strategists around the world. Sometimes there is like this, there are these big, these long Latin-y words, which I often mm. clumsily compare compared to, I guess, Viking words. Like, so I, words like stoush, stealth, uh, brats, you know, they're very toothy and short and succinct as opposed to empowering confidentiality and holistic synergies, which to me sounds, it's probably not all Latin based and forgive me if any <laughs> linguistic specialists are listening, but like there's a certain floweriness to that, which I don't quite know what to do with. Like if I was in a creative team and language like that came through from the strategist, I wouldn't really know what to do with it because it's not saying very much by trying to say a lot of stuff. You also mentioned that English is more direct. Is that just because it's shorter? Some of the words are shorter? I would say it's, it relates to both of those things I said. It is because it's shorter, but it's also because it just pushes a lot of meaning into fewer words. You can encapsulate a lot of thought 
into a couple of things and and put it up there. But but see, I when I say that it's 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 sort of a resource that is very helpful for people that might or not be using that for good. I try to avoid English expressions when I'm writing in Portuguese. I always try to write as simple as possible, either in Portuguese or in English. So when you mention those expressions in English, uh, either the uh, Viking ones or the uh, Zen-like ones, I try to avoid them at all. For me, writing as clearly and concisely as possible with the simpler words we can, that everyone can surely understand and extract the right meaning of that. It's one of the first commandments. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I really try to make sure people feel comfortable on doing uh, when I'm teaching with my teams and everyone is that it is not it is not bad. It's actually better when you write simpler. You don't have to sound intelligent. You don't have to sound smart. Actually, when people use fancy words, there is a lot of insecurity going on. I can only see like those flourish texts from, let's say, authorities, like judges and stuff like that. The language is trying to disenfranchise whoever is on the reading side of things. Like that language is to say, I possess some knowledge that you don't, so you better respect me. I don't want to impose that sort of feeling towards anyone that is reading that, be it a client or a creative or an account person. I want them to feel that I'm opening a dialogue and their point of view is just as welcome. So by avoiding use complicated words, I actually, I actually believe that I'm making myself more approachable. And I actually, in the end of the day, that it sounds smarter. I, I love people that say things simpler, uh, yeah. say things very simply and directly. Yeah, and, and I know this is a four-syllable word, but I, I do love the word disenfranchise because I think it's not difficult for us to see the use of big flowery words as someone projecting a bit of insecurity into the world, as a way for them to hide. But perhaps for some people, it's to be more manipulative and to actually try to push people down, not just hide. And so disenfranchise, I think, is actually a, a powerful word for people to think about when they come to writing a creative brief or a presentation, do you want the audience of those important documents to understand them and come along on the journey with you as you take them through your thinking? Or are you trying to make them feel insecure? I love that word. Um, can I ask you one other thing about linguistics and specifically Portuguese before we go into the topic of the power of problems in strategy and account planning? And that is what I also noticed with some of the translations that I've seen is there are a lot of exclamation marks, a lot of exclamation points, and also a lot of words are capitalized that I wouldn't have expected to be capitalized. What's What are those two things about? That's a good question. The exclamation marks, I'm not sure if I can pinpoint to what you're talking towards to. The uh, capitalization thing, I was wondering the other day if we still need to capitalize internet because people still do that. And I was like, why do we do that? Why do internet is such an entity that we have to treat it with such reverence? Still, like we have to capitalize that. I'm not sure if we should still be doing that or not. If anyone that is listening to that can give, give us the answer, it'll avoid me a Google search. Well, I've, I found just professional words in general, like uh, like marketing or estrategia, strategy, that we're getting capitalized in, in maybe three or four texts that I've had translated. And the exclamation mark, exclamation ones. point. You don't, okay. And the exclamation mark, exclamation oh. point, 
because I found a lot of them added to various texts was explained to me that, and it, I was being fed back a stereotype. Okay. And it was like, right. we're excited. <laughs> we're excited. So right. we have a lot of exclamation marks and exclamation points. <laughs> there is a, Does this mean true? No. Yeah. It's, you know, although I haven't identified exactly the uh, excessive use of exclamation points as you did, I can definitely relate it back to, I, I read this text, long article, academic article, long time ago, about 20 years ago, uh, about how Portuguese exactly one of the languages that suffer the most in terms of people understanding what you mean, like mitigating conversations, you know, mitigating meaning. Like it, it loses a lot of meaning between uh, what is said and what is understood. And that has a lot of cultural, again, not a linguistic expert. This was 20 years ago. But it just resonates with me and perhaps it has to do, definitely inform the uh, extra lens that I go through to make sure that I'm understood mm. to this day. But it, it definitely said that Portuguese is the probably the most mitigated language in the world. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. And that's because the root of that is that people that you know speak Portuguese, Brazilians, are very concerned that people will take what they said uh, in a bad way. So they go through an extra length to make sure that people get their good intentions. That's really interesting. All right. You, you want to avoid yeah. conflict. So uh, exclamation point to demonstrate excitement connects to that. You know, I want to make sure you get that I'm excited. I don't want you to have a single uh, second of doubt that I don't love what you're saying. Yeah, I love that. So two big words, ironically disenfranchising are we different disenfranchising people with the way we're communicating or are we being clear short succinct direct bringing them in and then the other one is mitigating are we mitigating meaning or are we clarifying meaning these are really useful concepts i'm i'm happy to be talking about words actually i've got one last word question the word insight doesn't exist in portuguese what's up with that it doesn't i would say that the closest that we get to in portuguese would be like the literal translation of revelation revelação if I had to, if, if I was forced to use some Portuguese word to translate for insight, I would use that one. But it doesn't fully translate the aspect because insight doesn't fully translate the meaning of what insight is supposed to be. Because insight is like this very long-winded thing that it's, you know, it's this revelation that throws new light into a situation that allows you to reframe the problem and provoke change, you know. Ugh. There isn't. I guess it's just some of those words that I'm not sure even sure that insight should be considered English anymore. Perhaps insight should be like a global open property of humanity. There you go. It's also a Viking word. I think it's an Anglo-Saxon or it's a Scandinavian, <laughs> a word from the Scandinavia region. But, you know, it's different on it has a different mouth feel. Also, one of those weird words or phrases you learn when you work around food advertising, mouth feel and yeah. fill of stomach and things like this. Anyway. Insight, there you go. It doesn't exist in Portuguese or Spanish, I believe. Can I add one thing to our conversation about linguistics, which is uh, when you mentioned to me the difference between my experience in Brazil and the U.S. And one thing that got me when I got to the U.S., although what you said about you know Brazilians loving visuals and being a very visual culture, it's absolutely true. I didn't have an experience as a strategist of thinking visually until I got to the U.S., Strategies here were very dependent on words and verbal constructions to express ideas. When I got to the U.S., I had the luck to 
uh, work with this amazing boss, Derek Goss at PwC. Now he owns a fashion brand because he came from fashion originally. So he brought in all this baggage about working in the fashion industry that uh, you know communicates visually so richly. And he brought into that work. So I've learned from him to bring that aspect of strategy, not using words, but thinking visually of expressing ideas and, and even like whole uh, fields of ideas uh, only in visual terms to read them, to understand them and to use them as tools. So when we said, can we use more words, less words? I will add to that. Can we use no words at all? And that doesn't have anything to do with the language, but also with those different backgrounds. And yep. that's what, you know, I love, I still love, and I don't see my love working in strategy vanishing anytime soon. There's so much to learn. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And it's also if you're, whether you're stuck or not on a project that involves words, just thinking, how could I explain this in images alone might shift mm-hmm. your thinking and might allow you to approach the, the problem or the opportunity in, in a new way. So definitely a, a practical technique there. Let's talk about problems, okay? Yes. Why are problems important for strategy or account planning work? There is no possible strategy or account planning work that you can trust without having a clear definition of a problem first and foremost. That for me is the you know, single more important fundament of strategy is being able to clearly, correctly define what the problem you're trying to solve. Because if strategy is about solving problems more efficiently, without a problem, you don't have a strategy. You cannot say you have a strategy until you know what the problem you're trying to solve. And the issue with that, for me, is that people don't pay enough attention to defining the problem. It's not sexy. Everything else we do on our day-to-day is so much sexier. Writing a brief, getting to an insight, discussing with the creatives, building presentations, finding smart quotes or a nice image to wrap it up so perfectly. Talking about problems... You know, what the heck, Rodrigo, what are you talking about? Why do you want me to engage into something that is so boring? Okay. I want to come back to this. I want to come back to this, right? But first, I want you to define the word problem or just help us understand the different kinds of problems, right? Because I think this is something that people struggle with where the most common kind of problem, assuming a culture, a business culture, allows that word to happen. Often, it's really generic, like... Our problem is our awareness isn't high enough or our sales aren't what we want them to be. So how do you define the word? And connected to that, do you see different categories of problems that are reasonable to play with in strategy? Yes. Um, The first thing is to understand that the problem I'm referring to is the problem that advertising can solve or communications can solve. And understanding that what advertising and communications deal with are people... Has, they, they always have to do with people, how people feel, what people think, how they behave. Those are the three key dimensions, right? That's what we can expect from advertising. How they feel, what they think, how they behave. The kind of problem that I want to get to, that I need to get to, uh, so we can get started properly, is what are people thinking, doing, or feeling right now that is getting on the way of us achieving our goal. 
So when people said awareness is too low, this is not the problem that I'm looking at. That's a diagnostic. That's just a data point. What you're going to hear at the beginning always has to do more with the business objective or the business problem. And it's always a way of saying we're not selling enough. It's always a disguised way of saying that sales are not up there. We're not, you know, we're not on the way to reach our targets. We, we were selling less. We're selling more, but not enough. You know, the, there's a lot of penetration is low. Frequency of purchase is not up there. Those are all fancy ways of just saying we want to sell more. That doesn't say anything to me. What we really need to get to is what are people feeling, um, doing or thinking that it's not helping us get there. So the kind of problem that we need to have, it's a people problem. Yes, there is. there are cultural problems, but honestly, yes. if advertising needs to change culture, it's because culture in its turn is expected to change what people feel, think, or do. In the end of the day, it's always about of people. And the communications problem for me always has to start with people. The phrase that articulate the business, the communications problem in a brief for me, it is mandatory that we start with people don't, people do, Brazilians think, men do, you know, I have to refer back to people. Otherwise it's, it's just ethereal and I don't know what to do with that. The Sweathead Do Together is the first strategy conference you can turn into a plan. It will happen on September 22, 23, and 24, and it will feature over 14 speakers plus an optional masterclass on the third day. Everything will happen online, and it will make most sense for people in the time zones between LA and New York. All right, if you've just tuned in, which is not how podcasts work, but if you've just tuned in, Rodrigo the winner of over 180 awards has said the following, without a problem, you don't have a strategy. The kind of problem that we're looking for is a problem that advertising can solve, which will typically involve people, how people think, feel, or behave, and that ways of writing the problem statement might involve a structure such as people or the audience, however you define them, do or they don't, do something or they think or they feel a particular way and that in trying to solve that problem you get to a strategy there you go quick recap the concept of right or wrong problem which often comes up in a conversation with someone as like this you know how do i know i found the right problem which is very similar to the question how do i know i've got the right insight or the right strategy how useful is the word right in front of the word problem how would you coach someone to finding the right, quote-unquote, problem? It's very useful because I think it's going to be very rare, if possible at all, that you only have one possible problem. You might find that you have many potential problems. So how do you pick the right one, the right problem? The right problem is one that advertising can solve, that your tools at your disposal can solve. So if you're doing advertising, make sure that this is a problem that advertising can address. If you're doing direct marketing, make sure that's a problem that direct marketing can address. It's going to depend on your tools. And make sure that not only it can do something about it, but that it can have a big contribution on doing that. Those are the two main criteria. Like, can I solve this problem with the tools at my disposal? And are this going to make a big enough difference that the investment is uh, sort of justified? Those are the two things that I look for. Okay. So just in a sentence or two, 
I want to get a little bit more detail on those two points. Okay. And I know that you've kind of answered at least the first question. How can somebody know if advertising can solve the problem? What we've said is that the kind of problem right. that you want people to solve is a problem yes. that advertising can solve, which will involve people. So is the answer to the question, how do I know if advertising can solve that? Is the answer to that question simply, well, it involves a problem statement that is stated with empathy in the minds of how people do or don't do a particular thing. Is that the answer to the question? We know that this is a problem that advertising can solve when we are dealing with something that relates back to what people it's, are feeling, thinking, or are doing right now. When we articulate something that is true, we want a problem that is true. We don't want a fictional problem. We want a data point to support it. We want to make sure it is. But because we do believe, in, and that's proven, that uh, advertising is very powerful to affect the perception of feeling or a behavior, as long as those things are connected, you can be pretty sure that you're dealing with the right problem. Of course, you, you're only going to be you're only going to be addressing okay. the best problem okay. that you are able to articulate. I think there is a strong element of creativity within the strategic process uh, before that point, and that's basically figuring out or articulating as many as as many hypotheses as possible. You know, the more hypotheses you investigate at the beginning, the more opportunities you have to identify what is it that you have to do. Uh, hypotheses don't come from anything else but, you know, wondering and generating quantity so you can get to quality. Okay. You also mentioned another criterion. Uh, yeah. Uh, big contribution. That in solving this problem, we think we can have a big contribution what does that mean? How do I know if the contribution is big enough? How do I know that this problem is the right problem that can have the biggest contribution? How do you work that out? By first understanding the, the business opportunity. If it's something that, you know, you do believe there is an opportunity to be addressed. Let's say if you want to grow an existing consumer base or you want to open a different consumer base, you're going to have data about their purchasing power, consumption ability, and you can decide which way to, to go first. Or it might be as simple as just understanding that perhaps one alternative, it's not something that advertising can do anything about. You just might face a problem where the issues holding it back are economical. And what advertising can do about the economy? Very little. But what advertising can do about maybe suggesting or introducing a new usage for your product? A lot. Like you can inspire people to, you might not be able to inspire a different audience right now to buy a fancy cheese because it's too expensive and people don't have money. But perhaps you can, you know, suggest people that already have the purchasing power and the habit of consuming your fancy cheese to use it more often. So the second alternative is much more likely to succeed. All right. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we're kind of talking about pretty intellectual and esoteric stuff in a way. And as we explore definitions of words and techniques, we're kind of building this little mind map or scaffolding. And I know that in asking questions about these things in real time, it's easy for the question to come out a little bit fumbly. But also, I just want to say that that's actually like a lot of our work. And it's okay for you to be like, oh, I just used a big word. What does that word mean? Oh, it means this. But is that subjective or objective? What does subjectivity mean? I don't know. Oh, my God, I'm so confused right now. What do I need to do? Go for a walk. 
calm down and write some stuff down when you get back to the desk, perhaps. So this kind of interaction, I hope it's practical, even though I know we're delving into kind of intellectual territory. So to connect a little bit more to the daily life of a strategist or an account planner, what are some useful techniques that a strategist could deploy to find problems that advertising can solve? When you have a specific brief, when you have a specific assignment, I usually recommend that the first thing that people do is just to write down every opinion or point of view they have about a specific problem. Like the first thing that people get terrified about is the blank page. Oh, I just got this new assignment. They just, you know, we've been invited to pitch this big telecom company. This is massive. This is going to change my life, change the life of the agency, career building, etc. So I have to, you know, collect and amass all this huge amount of information, everything I can. And that's, that's the wrong way to get started. The right way to get started is let's take the information that we have. Let's put it on the wall. Let's analyze it. Let's cut it down. Let's start crafting them into hypotheses as soon as possible. Let's use the lot we know about lots of little things and try to apply them to this new thing. We're going to find some intersections between the areas that we have some expertise and the task at hand. Let's say we might not be working with telecom for a while, but the problem or the brief might have to do with teams. And we might be working with teams on another account. So we know stuff about teams. And the stuff that we know about teams can be very useful here. So you can start crafting hypotheses around teams, not necessarily as they relate to the telecom category. And then you're going to start connecting the dots. So, so that's, the, that's the first thing that I say. Don't underestimate the knowledge that you already have as strategies by just you know, knowing about other categories, knowing about other segments, and knowing about culture and life in general. There's a lot, you know, if you've been working in a strategy for a while, if you're not like fresh new to that, You've been already, you have been already accumulating enough expertise that you don't have to be afraid of the wide blank page. You can get started from a much better point. Right. And, and part of that's enjoying the mess, right? So if you're going to connect the dots, I think part of what you were just talking about is just get your dots up on a wall yeah. or on a piece of paper or on lots of pieces of paper. And eventually your probably your subconscious is going to start tying things together. Chaos is the only certainty that we have, right? That things will get messy. If things are up there, they will get messy. So don't be afraid of that. Just throw them out there. But start making yeah. those uh, creative connections as soon as possible. Again, for me, there is a huge, exciting aspect of strategy, which is applying the creative way of thinking into strategy. Let that messy, chaotic process open up new ways of thinking, open up new hypotheses. Uh, that's the that's the most exciting part. Just just you know seize that moment. It's so fun. That's the best part of the process. Do you, do you think that there's a bit of a turning point in a strategist's career where perhaps they've had too much education? And sure, they might have had mess in their studying and in their rooms when they were studying if they went to college and university, if they were fortunate enough to. But then they enter the workforce, and often people, when they're younger, they look for the way, the best framework the right way to do things, the five steps that get you to the best strategy ever. And then over time, they become more comfortable with chaos and mess. Although some people are just born that way or they grew up that way where they're like, yeah, totally, it's messy, but I'm going to be creative with it. Do you think that that's a bit of a turning point for people's careers? 
I usually say that the best part of your career is being a senior planner or a planning manager in some places, because that's the point of your career where you had enough you know, exposure and experience to know things enough, to know enough about things, to know what you want, to have autonomy, you know, to have some sort of a purview on the accounts that you take care of, the brands that you lead and stuff. But you can still do the strategy work. You don't have to be dealing with managing people and approving timesheets and that stuff. It's not still a big part of your day. So that's the part, being a senior planner, being a junior planning director, maybe being a planning manager, that's the part of your career that's probably the most fun and exciting one if you love strategy. Right. If you want, if you just want to lead and be a boss, you want to get away of that as soon as possible and just lead. But if you really like like strategy, you just spend as much time as you as you can at, at that piece of your career, that part of your career, because you're not going to have as much fun as, as that. So yeah, I, I do think that um, different people get to that point in different ways. I, I can see all the descriptions that you gave happening. I see people that try to find their way and their framework, people that uh, get along being you know, comfortable with the chaos and still grow. I don't think there is only one way. I, I've, I've seen many people succeed in different ways. What I just want to make sure is that they know, you know the teams I lead, the, the friends and people that I exchange, you know, that I talk about that, is that they know that there's space for everyone. Like that's the beauty of this job. Like you can be the massive chaotic strategist. You can be the framework dominant planner and don't second guess because someone else is doing it. That's that's the wrong way. Okay. I want to do the five whys with you, at least five. And I want to address the problem that in advertising problems aren't sexy. I'm going to start with that as a problem statement. I'm going to ask you why, and you're just going to give me one statement back, and then we're going to see where we end up in the next two minutes. Are you down? Mm -hmm. Will you play with me? Okay. So in advertising, one of the main problems with problems is that problems aren't sexy. Why? Because ideas are sexy. Okay. Why are ideas sexier than problems? We live in a culture and time that worships creativity. Why does worshiping creativity mean that problems aren't important? Because the way creativity is depicted culturally leads people to believe it is magic, it is destiny, it is meant to be. Okay. Why can't magic come from a problem? Who said it can't? I do think it in can. In people's minds. In Okay, but hang on. We're, re- we're, we're, okay. we're channeling imagined research, yeah, okay? Yeah, in yeah. culture, society, in people's minds, why can't magic come from a problem? It's because people don't know it can. It, it's just as exciting. And I get, you know, it, it took me a long way. And I, again, I love the creativity aspect of strategy. And long before I acknowledged the importance of cracking a good problem, I was... A sucker for crafting great insights. I sort of managed to learn how to get to a good insight way before I get to this. But I do get the same pleasure now on getting to the right problem as I get to getting to the right insight. Okay, I'm going to come back to this. And what, what I find interesting, I mean, we've both done this work for a very long time. You've definitely been, you've won a lot of awards, Rodrigo. It's very intimidating. An exercise like the five whys is actually not as straightforward to do because you've got to work out which words you're grabbing onto as you get into the next why. Mm -hmm. And so 
I want us just to end by reframing the starting point, which is problems aren't sexy. And we got into this topic about creativity being magic. I would love us to use in the final problem statement, just as a rushed exercise, mm -hmm. I'd love us to use the word magic, mm -hmm. right? So, because you said, well, they don't know it can. Okay. People don't know that magic can come from problems, mm -hmm. which kind of addresses what I said. But I want to, I want to go again at that one. So, why do people think that creativity is magic, and that neither come from a problem? Why don't they know that? Because great magic is always going to be kept a secret. It's interesting, right? So how would you re-articulate the problem that we think we need to solve if we're just working with this set of thinking? We start with problems aren't sexy, but hey, the real problem is dot, dot, dot. The real problem is that, I'd say in a very straightforward and summarized way, that honestly, people are scared. There is a huge taboo around messing with problems. They, they try to avoid even the word problem. Oh, don't, don't call it a problem, call it an opportunity. We don't have a problem, we have an issue. Uh, and people just, you know, have this big taboo around problems. And, and honestly, I, I don't get that. We live in a world that looks for positivity and optimism and problems have to do with, the, the you know, the, the shadow of it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the thing. If you don't acknowledge that it's the yin and the yang, if you don't have a great problem, you're never going to get a great insight or great strategy. Yeah. But yep, I yep. think that there is there is a misunderstanding of what problem is. I agree, I agree. And because we're playing a game, I know we're using the five whys, which was from Toyota with a D, Sakashi. I hope I got that correct, from <laughs> Toyota with a T. Um, we're still playing this game in my own way, right? Where I'm setting the rules and I get to say whether we won or not or whatever. But like, <laughs> what I'm curious about is reframing the, the problem from problems aren't sexy to maybe adding an extra, an extra phrase, which is problems aren't sexy because people will know where my magic comes from. And there's a certain sense that if people know where my thinking or my magic comes from, then I'm going to be seen as not being creative, which means I might not get creative opportunities. But all, all I wanted to do is sort of, again, show the messiness and, mm -hmm. and the different styles of problem exploring and articulation, but also that with enough intuition and, and research, you could probably get somewhere that's worth playing with as, as a hypothesis. Totally. Right? Yeah, people don't pretty think quickly. Problem. Pretty quickly, that was my point. People don't think problems are sexy because they are afraid of the mess and the chaos. I love it. To, and to admit that there's mess and chaos because magic doesn't admit there's mess and chaos, even though it might have taken a lot of mess and chaos to yeah. get to. I think we're getting somewhere for the, with this brief, Rodrigo. Um, I really <laughs> appreciate your time. We talked about words. We got to talk about Brazil. I love talking about Brazil. And we got to talk about problems. If people want to find you on the internet, because you do talk and explain some of these concepts on the internet, where's the best place for people to find you? Uh, my Instagram account, I just found it. It's the easier place for me to post. And I do try to little, post a little bit every day, every business day from Monday to Friday. I try to post a little, a little thing about strategy, planning, problems, insights, creativity on my Instagram account, which is maroni.rodrigo. So it's just my name backwards with a dot in the middle. Beautiful. No exclamation marks. I love it. I love it. And no exclamation marks. Rodrigo, thank you so much for joining me on Sweathead today. I hope to get to see you uh, in real life sometime in the future. Thanks for having me, Mark. It was such a pleasure and I hope to see you soon again. Love it. Peace.